about a, a topic like this because when I was like particularly bad at school, um, I, I struggled to get through the trick, and I vowed that I'd never be involved in any sort of career that involved money or finance or numbers. So it's quite ironic that God has now placed me in an actuarial firm of all places where my colleagues are, are actuaries. Um, but here we are. You don't have your professor. Um, but luckily enough, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about money and finances. So it's not necessarily a rocket scientist or a professor that's required to just really just, I suppose, exposit what we find within, within the Bible and specifically today um, within Proverbs. So I'm going to start, again, I don't have three points, <laughs> so I'm going to start very broadly, and then I'm going to sort of go through sort of a couple of things, and then I'm going to get into Proverbs, okay? So it's actually going to be a long introduction, probably half of what I have to say is, is in, in introduction, but it's very important for the rest of what uh, Proverbs has to say, because it, it locates Proverbs in, in the, the context of the entire Bible. Okay, so let's start first. So do you know that... Um, in the Bible, there are around about 2,350 verses that deal with money and possessions in the Bible, yet only 500 that deal with faith and prayer. So we already start to see that the, the, you know, the Bible um, has a lot more to say about the, the everyday life of money than it has to, do, has to say about a lot of things that we think the church um, should be speaking into and speaking about. And so, you know, the, the sheer scale, on, and then there are 30,000 verses in the, in the Bible. So you can sort of start to see there's a fair percentage of them deals with this issue. And so it's obviously a very complex topic. It's a very important topic, but the complexity sort of is, is, is compounded by the infinite number of situations in which money and possessions and wealth have an impact on our lives. So like you've got this, like this matrix that becomes nuts in, in, in trying to understand. So I was chatting a little bit earlier, and someone said, oh, you're doing a... a in doing this um, message on finance, I'm so excited. I said, no, don't be excited because literally I'm not going to satisfy anybody today. You're going to walk away and go, no, he didn't address what I think he should have addressed. It's probably going to make some of us feel uncomfortable because it really does take on the prevailing systems that exist in our, in our world and, and what God has to say about them. And we, and me particularly working in an actuarial firm, are complicit in these systems that bring about the very world that we live in today. And some of you are, com are very much complicit in that you, you, you're part of this, this big sort of money-making capitalist society, which we don't see much evidence for in the, in, in, in the Bible. All right. So one of the things that's just as a sort of a, a precursor of a thought is we often see that when, when it comes to the Bible, we like to sort of over-spiritualize it as if it doesn't have a massive impact on the material existence that we that we live in or our bodily sort of day-to-day -day lives but in fact the, the 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 bible is preoccupied with bodily existence sorry i need to change this so i keep on ticking it all right so it's preoccupied with this idea of bodily existence god created the world in genesis it's a real world of food and work and sexuality and god declares it to be very very good um we have the ten commandments they're not just arbitrary regulations but they wisdom of how the work how the world should work and it's almost this non-negotiable rules as to how you need to live to be in sync with the created order so you can imagine if we just decided well do not murder you know is, isn't something that we should uh, pay much attention to Imagine the, the created order. Imagine what society would look like if that sort of cornerstone rule was not in place. So it's very much about our, our daily existence. 
And then, of course, we have this all culminating in, in the incarnation of Christ, the incarnation being, being made flesh. Jesus, the Word, became flesh. And what did He do? He healed people. He fed people. He cast out demons. So basically what He was doing is He was bringing about physical restoration and rehabilitation of bodily life of bodily people who had lost their capacity for a viable bodily life in society. And you see how it all works. People who are bodily people who lack and Christ comes and physically does something to restore them in society. So when it comes to money and finance, we must be very careful that we don't also just spiritualize it and, and cast it in this, in this sort of heavenly realm as if it doesn't have an impact. It does. It has a massive impact on our bodily lives as human beings in the material world. And obviously, you know, the more wealthy you are, the less you believe that, right? So in preparing this message, I've unashamedly uh, used a book called Money and Possessions by Professor Walter Brueggemann. If you can get hold of any of his stuff or listen to any of his podcasts and really get to the heart of what God has to say about, about wealth, and this is the, the, I would advise you get hold of this book. So what I want to do is I actually want to start in the sort of broad introduction and look at the six theses that he sets out for money um, and possessions. And what he does is he sets them out, as in how these theses cover the entire Bible, and then he looks at how the, the current day market ideology contradicts those, how it stands in contrast to the biblical idea of God's, of God's economy. And this becomes a very important backdrop to Proverbs, because Proverbs is not, if you read it, it it's, it's wisdom saying. So there's not always a, a sort of a, a golden thread or a theme that you can follow. But if you stand back with these six theses, and then you look at Proverbs, you start to see a lot more of the wisdom that it has. Okay, so here's the first one. Money and possessions are gifts from God. Money and possessions are, are gifts from God. So creation theology says that God created all that there is, and all the wealth that we have today is a product of the earth and the gifts of those natural resources that God has given us from which all wealth comes. It's a gift given to us by God. The market ideology contradicts that and says, no, there are no gifts. There's only ownership, and there's reward for adequate performance and production. So the better you are, the more you get. And what this does then is creates an illusion of, that you are self-made, an illusion of self-sufficiency, illusion that ownership is absolute. Once you own it, it's yours. And so when you see the earth and resources not as a gift, but as something to be owned, something to be acquired, you start to understand how in history conquest and colonialism has been justified. It's not a gift. I own it. It's something to be controlled. And it also gives us a lot of understanding as to why so much of today's wealth is in the hands of so few in this world and in our country. Because we don't see these gifts. Uh, we don't see these resources that we acquire as gifts but is owned. Okay, second thesis. Money and possessions are received as a reward for obedience. Now, this one will jar you a little bit, but there's no doubt that there's a robust quid pro quo in the Bible, a connection between obedience and prosperity. And I'm going to read a lot of Scripture. I'm going to expect you to look at it. You can probably take down the citation and go in, but I'm going to move through Scripture pretty quickly because there's a lot to cover. Psalms 1, 1-4 introduces the entire 
entire uh, book of Psalms. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. Now notice the transition. If you obey, obey God or obey the law of the Lord, they are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper, linked to obedience, and then it says, not so the wicked. Not so the wicked. So this is a difficult one because we see in South Africa that the wicked have indeed prospered for hundreds of years. And their wealth is, in, is, is, a, is a direct connection to the wickedness of the past that gives us the wealth that we have today. But it's also clear the Bible is not indifferent to human contact, uh, conduct. Actions have consequences. And money and possessions and finance belongs to a larger moral fabric. And we must pay attention to how we live and what we choose, because what we choose impacts our future. How we live and how we choose, because what we choose impacts our future. But the Bible also realizes this is a tricky assumption, right? Because if you look at the book of Job, who lived uh, an incredible moral life, he suffered. He suffered uh, death in his family, he suffered uh, illness, and he lost everything that he has. So this is not a simplistic formula, but the, the, the thesis does say that you just can't do anything with your life that you want and expect it to turn out well. There is a congruence between your actions and consequences, both as individuals, as families, as communities, and as countries. There is that connection, and, it's, and it is throughout the Bible. Market ideology contradicts this that says it is the productive, not the obedient, the productive who should achieve, receive all the rewards that the system has to offer. And even though these rewards often do not go to the productive, but to the well-advantaged and well-connected. So it's an irony of this market ideology that the most productive, those who work the hardest, must get everything. But we know that actually in real life it doesn't really happen. And this speaks into this whole idea of historical wealth and systemic privilege. And that's a massive subject on its own. But this idea that we believe that all the wealth that I have and everything that I have is because I've worked hard and productive is actually a, a total lie. It is because of history and of systems that suit certain people and don't suit others. And that's a whole other discussion. But just interestingly around this idea of, of how the advantage get rewarded, those who have resources can benefit from the system. So I was in, um, in, a, in, a, in a meeting the other day with an actuary, and he's um, written a massive paper on the impact of medical negligence claims on hospitals and the way in which it's basically uh, really just robbing the public health sector of its ability to deliver health. And he gave me the stat, and I went and checked it up, and it's, it's, it's right. There are 60 million people in South Africa, 9 million on private health care that includes me, so that's discovery, momentum, and so on. The same amount was spent on private health care in one year for 9 million people as was spent on health care for 51 million people in one year. 210, 215 billion rand in health care in one year spent on 9 million people as opposed to 50 years. And you start to see how this, this, this idea of productivity and advancement and connection uh, starts to, to play out in our daily lives. Right, third thesis. Money and possessions are to be shared in a neighborly, neighborly way. Right, this is the core theme of biblical faith, that economic practice and policy must be ordered to serve the common good. It must be ordered to serve the common good. Isaiah 58, 67. Is this not the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke? to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, 
and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin. And then Jesus picks up at this theme in Matthew 25, 34 to 40. The king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you in or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it for one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And the market ideology contradicts that and says there are no neighbors, only rivals, competitors, and threats. And so we have this predatory economy, predatory practices that says it's win at all costs, do whatever you have to do, Okay, and forget about your neighbor. It's not about the common good. It's about me. Can you see the massive contradiction? And we've seen this in our society today, in which the capitalist society has become so predatory and so much about protectionism and so much about me and mine. Fourth thesis, money and possessions belong to God and are held in trust by humans in community. So what we possess is owned by God and he has placed it in a trust. And if you know how trusts work, it's, it gives responsibility to the trustees according to the intentions of the owner of that property to steward that property in line with those intentions. So God owns everything. We've already established that. He has entrusted it us as trustees and he's saying, I want you to, to steward these possessions and this money according to my intentions, which are for the common good of your neighbors. But what happens is we forget that we are trustees and we start to believe that we are owners. And so the market ideology, it says this, that money is my own. I own it, I've worked for it, and I do as I please. All right, fifth thesis. Money and possessions are sources of social injustice. When we view the, 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 the possessions and the finance that we have as mine, without the accountability of the trustee, in other words, without looking to God and saying, what is your will for the way in which this stuff is used, it starts to use money and possessions in a destructive way at the expense of the neighbor and the common good. So we see this in, in the privatization of things that should be for the common good, health, uh, education, infrastructure, which is, ends up being massively in favor in those who have access to resources. So if I take myself as an example, um, I'm able to afford a Discovery Health Premium. My children go to the best schools that, 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 uh, that are in Cape Town. Um, and I live in the southern suburbs where the infrastructure relative to the infrastructure in um, Kailicha is worlds apart because we have this we have this belief that those who have resources should have more of the resources should have the better education should have the better health should have the better infrastructure and so we start to see how this uh, starts to spin out of control uh, in societies where this idea of, of, of it's me mine and my own Sixth thesis, money and possessions are seductions that lead to idolatry. Money and possessions are not inanimate objects, but they are forces of desire that evoke love and lust, and they compel our devotion and eventually our servitude. And we know that feeling we get when we see that possession that we want or we desire, right? It actually has an emotional impact on us. It, it, it makes our our heartbeats increase and sometimes it takes the money out of our bank card far quicker than we know. And 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
and in their eagerness to get rich, some have wandered away from the faith. So it's this idea that you can't serve both God and money. Only one can be the love of your life. Only one can be the pursuit of your life. So with these basic theses in mind, let's move into, into Proverbs now. So Proverbs basically wants to, when it comes to money, it has this contrast between being wise about money and being money smart. So those are things you got to keep in your head. Wise about money and money smart. And money smart is what is demanded of our society today. If you want to succeed in this world today, in this market, in this, in this market capitalist system, you have to focus on these sorts of things. And, and, and all of you will be aware of them, at least those of you are adults and have your own bank accounts, right? When to buy and when to sell. When to borrow and when to lend. When to owe and when to pay back loans. Where to invest, who to trust. So the, 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 the money smart economy says, don't be distracted by emotional sentiment. Don't you see that in all those adverts of the, of the investment companies? Don't be distracted by emotional sentiment. Your single aim is wealth, security, and success. That is what must drive the way in which you structure your financial affairs. Which is very different to what, what Proverbs says. Is that you need to be, the way you become wise about money is understanding that money is deeply contextualized. It is, doesn't stand alone. And that's why I introduced with those six theses. It's deeply contextualized. It's, it's, money and possessions exist within this the social moral fabric that God, this created order that God has set up, it's not something apart from. It's intrinsic to this order. So the book of Proverbs begins and ends with two assertions about money. So Proverbs 1, 10 to 18, looks at this idea of what happens when you're seduced by a bad company, the destruction that comes to yourself and that around you when you are seduced by, by, by people who are, are, are bad company. And it ends that section by saying this. It says, such is the end of all who are greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. So we start to get this introduction now in Proverbs of this idea of greedy for gain, which if you, you start to align to some of the theses of the market ideology that I just spoke about. And then Proverbs 38 to 9 says this. So we now write at the end of Proverbs. It says this. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, the other consequences... I may have too much and disown you and say, who is this Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of God. So note the contrast. The prayer of the wise is to be delivered from wealth and poverty. So I had a mate years ago, very, very wealthy guy, exceptionally wealthy guy. He was at school with me. We were in 10D. And so the way A's were the smart guys, right? And E was the smart, not so much smart guy. So I was in 10D with this guy. Long story short, he became so wealthy that he was able to fly in his private jet to the UK for weekend parties. And he said to me one day, and he, and he was a Christian guy, and he had massive tragedy in his life. Uh, his story is next level tragic. You cannot believe the tragedy this guy faced. And one day he said to me, I have discovered it's not good to be rich, and it's not good to be poor. And this is what this verse is speaking to us. It's this idea of being indifferent to money as opposed to this idolatrous servitude that the Bible is trying to protect us from. And the second part of that says, grant only as much as I need, no more, no less. Right? So that's a prayer, prayer of the wise. The dangerous consequences of being someone who, um, who, is, uh, who, who only pursues wealth is this whole idea that I'm autonomous from God. I don't need to rely on Him anymore. I can do things myself. I'm self-sufficient. Right? And then the, 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 the consequences of poverty is that you have 
the temptation to steal and, and betray your relationship with God. Now, the irony, okay, in, in our world today, and again in this market economy, is that it is actually <laughs> largely the self-sufficient, the wealthy who are stealing through tax evasion, through bribery, corruption, theft, fraud, zondo, do I need to say more? Right? Um, and what it does is that it represents this insatiable hunger for more. We just don't know what enough is. We just don't know what enough is. So um, UCT have got this um, income comparison tool. So I thought I'd just quickly go on there um, to just give you a little bit of context as to what you may think enough is. All right? And I just took a number and I chose the number 20,000 Rand. And, and basically it says pick a number, 20,000 Rand, and pick the number in your household. The 20,000 Rand is net of tax. In other words, you've been taxed already. So uh, 20,000 Rand a month, uh, the gross income is around about 24,000 Rand. So to put you in that picture. So if you have as a family of four, 20,000 Rand on your table on your, at the beginning of the month, do you know where that puts you in this country? The top 15%. So 85% of people in the country earn less than you as a household of four if you earn 20,000 Rand a month. Okay, so that's hard to put it in perspective. And we know that the majority of people live under the bread line, under the poverty line, let alone uh, what that tool. Go, go and put your income there. It's quite scary. And you start, and then they give you a nice little graph. And they ask you before, where do you think you sit in society? And you put yourself and you go, I'm sure I'm halfway. And they go, no, no, bro, you top 1%. So the theme of Proverbs is that the theme of Proverbs is acquiring wisdom about money is a slow, long-term move from greedy to greedy for gain to trusting a generous abundance of God. So we're moving. It's slow. Greedy for gain to trusting in the generous abundance of God. That it will be enough for you so that you'll be able to serve your community. So it's this movement from servitude to money to freedom from money, indifference towards it, neither rich nor poor, enough, so that I can be a trustee. Okay, so now there are a couple of themes that I want to look into. Now we've moved already, we're moving from greedy from gain. Okay, so maybe you're looking at greedy, greedy for, uh, what did I call it? Greedy for gain or whatever. Yeah, greedy for gain to trusting in the abundance of God. Now we're going to look at the sort of the sub-themes that come under that, okay? So the first one is creation is ordered so that deeds produce consequences. Ring a bell? These produce consequences. And, and, and Proverbs is committed to this ethic that, that commends diligence. So diligence leads to good material outcomes, and laziness is the opposite of diligence. All right? So we see in, in 10 verse 4, it says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Uh, 10 verse 26, Like vinegar to teeth and smoke to the eyes are the, la the lazy to their employees. I love that one. Uh, 12 verse 11, those who till uh, their land will have plenty of food, but those who follow worthless pursuits have no sense. 14 verse 23, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Uh, 20 verse 13, do not love sleep, or else you will come to poverty. Open your eyes and you'll have plenty of bread. Okay, so that's my big issue, like love sleep, right? Okay, so these, but, but what's interesting about these, I, about these um, proverbs in this market-based economy is it's often used to condemn the poor. And then you say, well, the poor are lazy. <laughs> that's why they don't have anything. But that's a very lazy argument. Because if you've been listening very carefully, the reason that the poor are poor in the first place is because we are not good trustees of what God has bequeathed us. And we've got into this greedy for gain mentality. We've taken it all for ourselves. And so no wonder they're poor. 
It's a very lazy argument. Okay, then there's a second aspect of this whole idea of deeds produces consequences, um, and it's the outcomes for those who are greedy for gain. Okay, so 15 verse 27 says this, Those who are greedy for unjust gain make trouble for their households, but those who hate bribes will live. Okay, 15 verse 27. So the outcome, obviously, of, 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 greedy, for, of greedy action is that you have, there's going to be a disturbance. Something's going to go wrong in your family, in your community, in your household. Okay? And then there's this implication that those who have sufficient resources so that they're able to pay bribes, all right? In other words, they're pushing the unfair advantage of their wealth. Those who bribe, who bribe will not live, okay? They will not live, because it says there, um, it says, but those who hate bribes who will live, so obviously those who bribe will not live, all right? And, and, and Brueggemann says there's actually, a, there's, a, there's, there's, there's some violence that is suggested here. And it's not necessarily bodily assault, but it's economic and political violence. And it takes very little imagination to connect that to our situation in South Africa today, where those who have paid bribes and are greedy for gain have created a society where the most are living below the poverty line. And that is the economic violence that they experience. And what is their outlet? Their outlet is political violence. And every single day in this country, there are service delivery protests, every single day. There are hundreds and thousands of every year in this country. And what happened in KZN was just one step higher of the, 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 the crying out of the poor. Because remember it says the poor will steal. That's why we can't blame poor people when they steal. We've put them there. We've created an environment in which I would steal too. I would also be out there ransacking the place if I couldn't put food on the table or I couldn't pay my kids school fees. What happened in KZN a couple of months ago is a warning that shot across the bow of the market economy in this country. That if we, as those who have, do not open our eyes, we mustn't be sorry and fall on our knees and pray to God when it's too late. We have been run over because we have not listened to the economic violence that we are causing to the people in this country. And then it goes on to say in 28 verse 16, a ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor, but he, the one who hates unjust gain will enjoy a long life. So this, 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 um, this cruel oppressor is a, is, a, is a powerful person. It's a money smart person who lacks understanding of the neighborly purpose of, of money and possessions. And it's contrasted to someone who refuses to exploit people, who refuses to exploit situations, who refuses to, to rip the guts out of something because they just can. And those people are seen as having a long and peaceable life. And exploitation is a very, very difficult thing to get a handle on, right? Because we can talk about the exploitation on a macroeconomic level, right? And, and how systems do that. But what, are, what in our lives, how do we exploit the situations in which we're in, right? And, and one of the interesting things is, I, I want to put this to you. If you buy something from a vendor on the street, and everybody, I've heard this before, and I was that sort of person, oh, let's negotiate with this person. I'm like, no, it's not negotiation. That's exploitation because it's an in, it's an it's a um, unequal power relationship. That person has nothing, and they're selling something for ten bucks, and you're trying to negotiate down for nine bucks. You don't need that one ring, but they need that one ring. That's the exploitation that we're talking about. That we rip the guts out of it. Where the one who, uh, who hates unjust gain will enjoy it. It's, just, it's an unjust gain to negotiate and to haggle with people who are poor. So these contrasts that we see, this diligence, laziness, greedy for gain, the common good, 
suggests that decisive life choices about money and possessions must always be made in the social context in which we live and how that context is impacted by such choices. So this idea again that choices are not, the choices about money are not about money alone, but impact on the life and the well-being of the entire community. So let me, I try to think about how this happens in our own lives. And, and, and one of the most powerful ways, and before I get into some water, So one of the most powerful ways in which we see life choices impacting us is debt, all right? And every time we get into debt to purchase something, which essentially means we can't afford it, just remember that, we can't afford it, right? Um, it has an impact on our ability to steward our money for the common good of the neighbor. It, or it has to, because now you've basically, in a sense, loaned the money and you're saying, well, what I have to pay on that with interest can no longer be used to serve the community. And it's tough because in a, money, in a market economy um, that is not geared towards the common good and the flourishing of neighborhoods, there's sometimes you have to take a mortgage bond to buy a house because you're just not, the, common, the, the, the economy is not set up in such a way that it's going to allow for all people to have housing. So you're sort of stuck into that. And it's very interesting, but I don't know if you've ever looked at what the word mortgage means. The mortgage means death promise or death pledge speaks volumes, doesn't it? It basically says that one of two things are going to happen. Either the pledge is going to die because you've paid off the, off the bond, or they're going to take your house, which means you're probably going to die. Right? It's a very, very powerful and almost sinister thing. But that's what happens when you live in a market economy, right? We, ha we have to do that because, I mean, it's very rare that someone can pay cash for a house. But that's where we are as a civilization. But there is also debt that we acquire that we have to be honest, is stuff that we don't need and we've been sort of coerced into this idolatrous nature of possessions, that we, we serve the shiny, we serve the bigger, we serve the more, as if it is something that we need. All right, second theme, proverb also deals with obligations that go along with wealth. So now it's opening this ordeal, it says it's not, and this is where some of us go, oh, but you know, does that mean I can't, I can't be wealthy? Y yes, you can. But it's complicated. <laughs> but it does say that you have certain obligations and you're going, oh, happy days, I'm going to be wealthy, I'm going, cool. Uh, this is what God says. It's in preference for the poor. He, he frames it with reference to the poor. He frames the, the wealth that we have with reference to the poor. I'd love it if he frames it with reference to the car I can drive. But he frames it with reference to the poor. This is what he says. Um, in 14 verse 31, those, in other words, those who have, who oppress the poor insult their maker, but those who are kind to the needy honor him. 17 verse 5, those who mock the poor insult their maker, those who are glad at calamity will not go unpunished. 21 verse 13, if you close your heart to the cry of the poor, the poor your cry, um, you will cry out and not be heard. 20, 22 verse 9, those who are generous are blessed, for they share their bread with the poor. 22 verse 22, do not rob the poor because they are poor, or crushed the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord pleads their cause, and despoils of life those who despoil them, in other words, who take away from them. 29 verse 7, the righteous know the rights of the poor, the wicked have no such understanding. It, and, and every one of us basically fit in the category of not poor in that passage. And it's very, very clear message that if your wealth, your wealth has to be in preference uh, towards the poor. This teaching clearly means to interrupt and contradict any sense that money is a private thing for one's self alone. In fact, God guarantees the legitimate presence of the poor in the community 
and the proper claim they have upon the community and upon adequate resources. Proverbs 22 verse 2, the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. 29 verse 13, the poor and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. So the creator refuses to discount or overvalue any, many, uh, any member of community, of the community. Discount or overvalue. He doesn't do that. Which is in extreme contrast to the money smart economy that overvalues the advantaged and the connected as if their wealth is solely a reward for their productivity free from any help. Elon Musk, richest man in the world, his dad owned an emerald mine. You know that? The Oppenheimer family, they acquired their wealth through diamonds on land that was colonized by the Dutch and the British and financed by a JP Morgan Bank over 100 years ago. JP Morgan Bank is the biggest bank in the Western world. It's the sixth biggest bank in the world. The five biggest are in China. The third theme, wealth may, the, 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 the third theme is that Proverbs affirms that wealth may be responsibly acquired if one participates in the economy in wise and responsible ways. Okay? It can be acquired if you participate in wise, responsible ways. Again, so revealing. 11, 24 to 25. Some give freely, yet grow all the richer. Others withhold what is due and suffer want. A generous person will be enriched, and one who gives water will get water. 11.28. Those who trust in their riches will wither, but the righteous will flourish like green leaves. So we see the contrast again. Money smart, common good, right? Those who are part of extractive, exploitive situations or fail to trust in God, in other words, they're trusting on, in their wealth, are the ones who never have enough, and they wither. And that withering is, it doesn't say how they wither, but there is a withering, and, and, and there is a shrinking, and there's a lack of flourishing that comes as a result. But those who give freely and are generous and righteous find wealth and flourishing. And it's, can you see how it's so counterintuitive to the way in which we are told that we need to live in this economy? It, it's actually quite scary. It's quite fearful to think that, that God says, yeah, you can be wealthy, but it's always in preference to the poor. It's always related to how generous you are. It's always related to the neighbor. It's always related to the common good. It makes me scared because I look at my bank account and I'm like, should I have this money in here? Should it be going elsewhere? So I've got a friend. Um, he's a doctor and he's devoted most of his life to working in the non-profit sector, specifically in informal settlements. And we, 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 we meet quite regularly and we've been having this discussion on what it means to be blessed in the biblical sense because I hear this word all the time, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. And, and, and I, we're trying to understand to what extent does blessing relate to materiality, all right, to the increase of your possessions or your, or your money. Because Christians often say that. They, when they say they're blessed. It's not necessarily uh, in, in things that are non-money related or non-possession related. It's often around their wealth, right? Oh, I'm blessed. I've got an increase in salary. I'm blessed. I've, I've got this contract. Um, and I've really struggled with that personally, what it means to be blessed. Because we pray for blessing. But what are we actually saying? And a lot of us, I think, I'm certainly going, won't you just, you know, make sure that I'm secure, make sure that I'm safe, make sure that I have a retirement. And um, this guy is someone who, relative to his peers, earns a low income, a small income. Um, yet him and his wife have helped build houses for people. They've helped people start businesses in informal settlements. And they're helping putting a child through university that's not their own. And, and, when I, and one day, he said this to me the other day, he said, 
I don't know how it works, but the more I give, the more God just provides. And I don't know how it works. And, and this is the, there's a certain mystery to what I'm saying this morning. It's, the, 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 it, we dare not view this whole idea of a sort of a works righteousness algorithm or formula. I can account it, you know. If I do enough good things, I'm going to get enough of something. It doesn't work that way, although it does. <laughs> but it's this idea of, of understanding who we are relative to God, not what we're supposed to be doing. It's understanding our relationship with God not as a bunch of rules and regulations. It's freedom to live in God's economy with the knowledge that we can trust God's abundance to give us what we need and more so we can steward it. The challenge for us is that we live in this tension of a fallen world that demands that you be money smart. And listen, I'm not saying don't be money smart. You have to because if you just give all your stuff away, you are going to be on the street and you're going to be in the next poor person. So you have to have that money, but that money smarts. But you have, we have to try, and this is this dance, this mystery, we have to try and balance it with this idea that we are trustees of what we have for the common good and for the neighbors. And it's very difficult, I admit, to be neighborly minded with your money when you've got bills to pay and various responsibilities to carry, especially when you've got people who are depending on you. But perhaps part of the message is that some of the bills that we have and the financial responsibilities that you're taking on are more a result of us being seduced into this idolatrous society and not actually about what we, we really need. And sometimes that's a hard message because sometimes we like night stuff, right? And again, I don't want to sit here and pretend I've got a wonderful watch. It tells me I need to end, you know? But it is, a, and, and this is where um, we have to start to, in our life groups, and this is why, you know, when we go out, is, is what, is, start to ask, what does it really mean to flourish? What does God mean when he talks about us wanting to flourish. Because money and possessions are tools in which for, for which that can happen. And, but how does that, because God intends us to flourish. God intends us to, to live abundantly. You know, that, 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 that famous passage in Ephesians that everybody quotes, and then we always default to the, the material. Live abundantly! And then we can't help because the market economy is sort of like biased toward, us toward abundance and, and materiality. But it is this long journey of moving from greedy to gain, greedy for gain, which is, you know, at a macro level, and then at a micro level in the decisions we make every single day to this idea of trusting God that He has, in His abundance, everything He owns is enough for us and more for our neighbor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank that You that in this world where there are so many contradictions and so many difficult situations around money and possessions that, that we don't stand alone and, and, and in the dark but you give us light. But I know that in trying to follow that light, we need courage and we need, we need, we need you to help us to deal with our fears in what happens or what will happen if we follow these biblical precepts of being a trustee, of, being, of working uh, for the common good for our neighbors. It's a scary proposition given the high unemployment in our country, given the economy that doesn't grow, given the corruption. It, it, but we need you, Lord, to help us to overcome those fears. And I pray for this community. I pray that Wellspring Community Church will actually become that beacon of what it means to live in God's economy. That when people come into the space, they won't, it won't be about the, the, the shiny, gleamy stuff. It, it will really be about a people who have an understanding of those who have are being given the glorious opportunity to steward for those who do not. I pray that this church will, will, will become known 
for its desire to execute and implement the, 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 the godly economy, the created order as you meant it to be. In Jesus' name, amen.